Welcome to Cato Audio for September 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Senator Rand Paul speaks at Cato University about the spending culture in Washington. Jason Brennan asks if we have a moral duty to vote. Dan Griswold offers a fix to our immigration system. Randall O'Toole discusses transit privatization. And Harvard's Jeffrey Myron makes the case for legalizing drugs. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. In these tight budgetary times, the stakes could not be higher for states. The Obamacare legislation, the Affordable Care Act, will uh, saddle states with a great deal of new compelled spending. And the stimulus bill, funds have just run out effectively to fund states' education programs as uh, revenues at the state level have fallen. So it's very important that we discuss education at the state level and at the federal level. I'm talking now with Adam Schaefer, a policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and Neil McCluskey, associate director of the Center for Educational Freedom and author of the book Feds in the Classroom. Gentlemen, welcome. So just to get started here, let's lay the groundwork. What is uh, the education landscape, at least for states, going to look like in the next few years when it comes to spending, revenues? We all know that uh, education is forms the bulk of state spending, but uh, what are the uh, coming challenges to state spending on education? Well, the scenario looks pretty grim for the foreseeable future. As you mentioned, federal funding, stimulus funds are running out this year, and that papered over a huge hole in the education budget for state and local governments. It really filled a gap. So this is really the first year, despite what we've heard from school districts, they constantly say they're losing a huge amount of funds, it's not really been the case over the past couple of years. And this is the first year that state and local governments are going to have to deal with huge shortfalls, which will increase in the coming years, as you mentioned, because of increased Medicaid costs and Obamacare costs that will be loaded on at the state level. At the local level, it also takes up the, the lion's share of their revenue even more than at the state level. And here, again, doesn't look like we're going to have a huge rebound in the home market anytime soon, which means their primary source of revenue property is not going to be rebounding anytime soon uh, either. So it's absolutely vital for us to get control of the spending issue. It's 47% of every tax dollar raised at the state and local level goes to K-12 education. It's huge. There's nothing that even comes close. Uh, Medicaid is about 15%. So with that as the backdrop, Neil McCluskey, the issue of national standards has not been that much in the news recently, but Arne Duncan, the Secretary of Education, has claimed sort of a unique authority to give or I guess offer states some wiggle room in exchange for some other changes to their uh, education systems that uh, may or may not have been in the No Child Left Behind law. Right. So let's set this up. We'll go back to at the state level. The No Child Left Behind Act said to every state that they have to get all kids to something called proficiency in math and reading by the year 2014. This was an utterly unrealistic goal. And what most states assumed would happen would be the No Child Left Behind Act would be reauthorized long before we ever got to 2014. Well, we're obviously, we're getting a lot closer to that year. And there's not much likelihood No Child Left Behind will be reauthorized anytime soon because the reality is there's big disagreement on what should be done with it. And there have just been bigger issues that have pushed it you know, constantly to the bottom of the priorities list in Washington. So what the Obama administration has said is a few months ago, they issued an ultimatum. They said, Congress, either reauthorize this law or we will let states out of its requirements, give them waivers, 
but in exchange for basically demands that we're going to make of what they should do with their education system. Well, so they said, if you're not ready to go with a new bill, Congress, by the beginning of the school year, we're going to go ahead and do this. So go ahead a, a month or two. Congress hasn't done anything with No Child Left Behind. The administration says, okay, now we're going forward with waivers. They still haven't told us exactly what they're going to make requirement to get these waivers. That, they say, you still have to wait till September. But they've made very clear that one of the things they're going to do is tell states, if you want to get a waiver, you have to adopt a common standard that's been adopted by multiple states. And they know full well that there is only one such standard. It's called the Common Core State Standards. It's something they already tried to twist state arms into adopting through race to the top. If you want race to the top money, you had to adopt these standards. So they're using this waiver authority, one, completely unconstitutionally. It essentially would be the executive making law. And worse than that, they're going to use it to impose national standards on every state. At the same time, proponents of those national standards are telling states, telling the people, adoption of these standards is totally voluntary, which is, is really, when you get right down to it, a lie. And we are now seeing the truth about that lie through these waiver proposals. So, but we'll have to wait till September to be sure that that's what happens. The um, regulation issue is huge and national standards is a threat, I think a wider threat and a greater threat than people even realize. And people are starting to wake up to the threat. I think uh, Neil um, has done a lot to point out to people how involuntary these really are. Unfortunately, in some states, private schools are going to get caught up in this as well. In Indiana, for instance, there was a new voucher law passes uh, this year that was touted as one of the most expansive in the country. It was uh, seen as a huge victory for school choice. Unfortunately, there's a huge regulatory burden that was imposed on private schools that participate in this program. They have to follow the state curriculum. They're graded on an A to F scale with financial penalties based on that, uh, same as public schools, and are placed under the explicit authority of the Department of Education. Here's where it connects up to the national level. Indiana is one of those states that signed on to the Common Core. So if we get a national standard, these schools now, nominally private, will be judged under the national standards and all the interest group politics that that entails. It's a really concerning trend that's not limited just to Indiana, but you look around at the other voucher programs and they have a high degree of regulation, many curriculum requirements, often state testing. And uh, it's unfortunate, it's something that people should be aware of and on guard against. So one of the reasons that I uh, support education tax credits a bit more, and we can get into that later possibly. Yeah, and you should also, it's not just now private schools that are threatened this way, also homeschoolers. In no state is there a law that says if you homeschool, you have to use the state curriculum, have to take a state test. But in many states now, you can sign on to a cyber charter school. You can charter school at home on your computer or at a public, a traditional public school in a state program and think you're homeschooling because your children are at home. But in fact, you're now part of a public school system and will have to follow this de facto federal curriculum. You have to follow right now, No Child Left Behind. All these things apply to you even though you think you're homeschooling because you're at home, you're sitting, your child's sitting in front of their computer. But these regulations are reaching down to everyone and the big problem is people don't realize it's happening. So effectively, just to put it into a single sentence here, we're talking about a federal standard that at some point will be applied to parents 
who wish to educate their own children in their own home as a regulation that would be applied across the board. If you use any sort of product right now that comes from a charter school or a traditional public school or from the state, that's going to happen to you. And increasingly, if there's school choice that allows private schools to participate but says you have to follow state tests and state curricula, then that's going to happen to you too. So it's just seeping down, kind of getting in underneath the foundations of your home and the government's tentacles are coming and you very well might not know it. This is a slippery slope argument that a lot of people sometimes you know, uh, discount. But we've seen this process actually occur in other countries. Australia is one of the most recent where there's a high percentage of students in private schools now that are funded by the government, by government funds. But over the decades, those schools have become less and less independent. And now they're essentially indistinguishable from public schools. They do have a religious character. They have to teach the state curriculum, however, highly restrictive. And this has happened in other countries as well. It's something that has its own logic. And people are actively pushing to get that result. And what people have to look out for is beware the term voluntary, because technically, Anything the federal government does in education is voluntary. If a state doesn't want to take back the money that their taxpayers had to hand over, they don't have to follow these rules. But of course, it's very hard to say we're going to sacrifice all our taxpayer money. So technically, that's voluntary, but it's voluntary as you know, handing your wallet over to the mugger with the gun at your head. You could choose to be shot or you can hand over the money. This is an important issue, I think, when weighing in a particular state different policy options. And a lot of times there are multiple options on the table, vouchers or education tax credits. And this was uh, the case in Pennsylvania this past year. There's a huge battle over a voucher bill, a new voucher program in Pennsylvania. It was very controversial, even among Republicans and Tea Party activists that are otherwise supportive of school choice. It was not passed out of either the Senate or the House. And um, unfortunately, it created so much controversy and bad feeling that nothing was done with a very good education tax credit expansion that passed the House 96 to 4%. Now, this would have doubled a program that already serves more low-income children than any other private school choice program in the country. And it does so without regulation on curriculum and testing and the independence of the private school. So it's a great option for both expanding freedom and choice in education and really protecting the independence of a parent's right to direct their child's education. Yeah, a lot of people argue for school choice. And when it comes to how that school choice will come about, typically the answer is, well, we'll take any. Right. And uh, that, you know, at, at first blush, <laughs> yeah. that sounds like a pretty reasonable Absolutely. idea. You know, never let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And that's kind of where people are coming from on this. I think that's absolutely true. But there's better and worse. And I think it's a fool's bargain to give away so much independence and to give regulatory authority and control to the State Department of Education over private schools. I think we're going to lose that game. It's essentially handing over the keys to the uh, school door to the very bureaucrats and system that got us into this mess in the first place. Now, Neil McCluskey, on the matter of higher education, I note that a lot of state attorneys general are now poking into this uh, world of for-profit higher education. They're looking into whether or not these schools are providing good value for the money that is uh, being provided to them. Interestingly, these state attorneys general apparently have no interest in uh, the young people who attend uh, state schools who get 
perfectly useless degrees in uh, dead languages or other degrees. Yeah, well, we've certainly seen that at the state level, and we've seen it very much at the federal level, especially Senator Tom Harkin, who's the chair of the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee in the Senate, has held a series of really public browbeatings more than than hearings to try and get at the truth, public browbeatings of for-profit colleges and universities. And there, this is really a double-edged sword. There are massive problems with for-profit higher education. It is absolutely true. They have atrocious program completion rates. They have very high loan default rates. And there is a giant question whether or not the degrees that most people leave with if they ever complete their programs are of value. The problem is this is the problem across all of higher education. The entire tower is crumbling, the entire ivory tower. It's not just for-profits. The problem, it seems, is that for-profit schools, maybe foolishly, have been completely honest about the fact they're trying to make a profit. What we've seen and what a new policy analysis that was done by an Oklahoma State professor named Vance Freed shows is that not-for-profit schools actually make bigger profits off of undergraduates than for-profits if you simply define profit as getting more in than you spend on an undergraduate's education. And so this is what we need to look at and what drives this ability of colleges to give out lots of worthless degrees and continue to bring in students is that predominantly the federal government provides huge amounts of student aid to students in the form of Pell Grant, cheap loans, and also lots of tax credit, tax deduction programs. And so it on the consumer side, severely cuts down the need for the consumer to be very efficient in deciding whether or not to pursue higher education, what to pursue, what to demand. And it allows colleges to just raise their prices with impunity because the aid is out there and no politician, it seems, is ever willing to say, well, the prices keep going up. We can't afford to give you more aid. What they say is prices go up. Here, have some more aid. And then they're shocked when the prices go up again. And this is directly tied into the big concern now, jobs, jobs, jobs. And people think that you've got to go to college to get a good job. Now, that's not true. There are huge problems with saying that a degree is the key to getting a good job. About a third of people with bachelor's degrees, in fact, earn jobs that don't require them. Lots of people without bachelor's degrees make more than people with them. But if we agree that generally more education makes you more marketable, then we need to cut student aid so we can bring prices back down to a reasonable level instead of scaring people with these absurd numbers that college tuition is represented by, get rational pricing, and then that will enable people to quickly and efficiently get the skills they need without the obsession with degrees and, and getting you know the world's biggest climbing wall at your university because gosh darn it, everyone else has got that. It will make it much more rational, and that's what the economy needs. Libertarians for a long time have watched the education system in the United States, higher ed and, uh, and K-12, and have shown I think it is probably by now a pretty ubiquitous chart, which is achievement across a broad range of standardized testing juxtaposed against inflation-adjusted per-pupil funding. One line is flat. One line is increased dramatically. Guess which is which? And Adam Schaefer, you say that uh, I guess sort of the message is starting to get through. The message 
is, I think, you know, it's starting to trickle out, trickle down. You hear a lot of talk about uh, higher education bubble and more and more talk about how much we're actually spending on education. People are waking up to the fact that that's the biggest structural financial problem. And politicians are forced to look at it for the first time, really, and look at it in terms of efficiency because they're out of money. And, uh, you know, it's an awful thing what's going on, but it's not awful that it's driving uh, politicians to be forced to look at this. You know, I've been talking to uh, Tea Party groups and citizen activists about this issue, and they really seem to get it that this is a primary issue of waste and inefficiency in our economy. And uh, as Neil mentioned, you know, we don't need more spending and education to get a better economy. We need more effective education, more efficient education. Yeah. And I think that maybe, maybe a sign that the public has really caught on to the, the basic rot that's in the system is that, of course, we all know that Governor Walker was trying to push curbs on public sector unionism in Wisconsin, and that the major opposition to this was coming from teachers' unions. That is the big force in public sector unionism or teachers' unions. Millions of members, they get the summers off to participate in politics. Very powerful. Well, of course, there was the recall effort in Wisconsin. At the time that we're talking, the Republicans have just held on to control of the Senate. Now, there are still two more recall elections for Democrats that are upcoming. But what this shows is, even in a powerful union state, like Wisconsin, the public recognizes, it appears, that public sector unions and the current system are not working and that just because they run ads and they talk about how terrible and mean the governor is when he says we have to curb union power and curb spending, they realize that that's not the case. And I think that that is a really powerful sign that people really are catching on, that even the public in a pretty liberal state like Wisconsin is no longer listening to the union siren song and they're saying, we're not going to follow you anymore. And it's also worth noting as uh, Adam, you were pointing out before we started talking that though unions are the public face in some sense of uh, the interests of teachers, they're not the necessarily even the most effective tool for the interests of the education establishment getting what they want, often to the detriment of educations of young people. They're the shock troops. Like you said, the public face, a lot of times they bring more financing to the table. But the fact is, we have a $600 billion a year government monopoly, essentially. It's a powerful force in every state, in every community. There are tons of jobs that it provides and a huge number of private interests that service the system. And so there are a ton of people that don't want their apple cart overturned. And they turn out, even if you don't have the protests and the teachers unions turning out in the streets, these are powerful interests. Fortunately, I think there's a limit to what they can extract. And I think we're coming to that limit where you can no longer hide how much of a burden they are relative to what is being produced. I think there's a lot of reason to be hopeful. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Adam Schaefer, policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and Neil McCluskey, associate director of the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom and author of the book Feds in the Classroom. You can read a lot more about education, about pursuing educational freedom, tax credits, higher education at our website, cato.org. There's basically one rule when it comes to federal spending. When they say they're cutting spending, they're probably not. Freshman U.S. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky argues that cutting spending means fewer dollars spent this year than last year. 
He made that case at Cato University in July. Now, uh, y'all may have heard there was a uh, little girl, and she really wanted. And David both heard this at Freedom Fest. It just is he is David here? Where's David? All right, you cover your ears. And if you're at Freedom Fest, I can't come up with a new speech every week. So, but anyway, there was a little girl. And uh, she really wanted $100, and she said she would do good things with it. And so she wrote a letter, Dear God, I'd like $100. And the postmaster didn't know what to do with it, so he sent it over to the White House. Uh, the president got it, and he said to his secretary, he said, well, that's a sweet little note from that girl. Send her $5. She'll be impressed. So the little girl got $5, and her parents had said always to send a thank you. So she wrote, God, Dear God. Thanks for the five bucks, but next time don't send it through Washington. They took 95% of it. <laughs> My dad always liked to tell this story, and it actually is a true story. A congressman comes out on the steps of the Capitol, and there'd been a big battle, kind of like the battle we're having over the debt ceiling. Been a big battle, and he came out, and he decided to vote for the budget. And they said, uh, well, how did you make your decision? He said, well, I went with the best deal. And they said, well, does that mean your vote's for sale? And he said, no, but it's damn sure for rent. <laughs> I think corruption in Washington isn't like the Huey Long days. I don't see people passing around money in bags and that kind of thing. Maybe I'm not looking in the right places. But I think really the corruption is, is that people really don't believe in anything. They don't believe really, they are always sort of dumbed down to what is possible. So we, some of us say, you know, the whole budget is a disaster up here and the only way we'd fix it is with a balanced budget amendment. Immediately all the naysayers say, you can never do it. You're never going to get enough votes. The Democrats won't vote for it. And so we fight these battles, sometimes dispirited from the very beginning. Or sometimes the leadership in one house will say, well, we have to raise the debt ceiling. Well, when they say that in February, it takes a little bit of the leverage out of the game if they're already saying we're going to eventually vote to raise the debt ceiling. But we've been fighting this back and forth. And the biggest problem with it, and the biggest problem with discussions in Washington, is they all start from the wrong place. Everybody says, we're gonna cut a trillion, or we're gonna cut four trillion, or three trillion. And you scratch your head and you say, from what? What are they talking about? Are they really gonna cut a trillion dollars? That sounds good. Why would that be bad? Why would the Boehner plan be bad? They're gonna cut a trillion dollars. The problem is, is everything around here is from the baseline. Nobody acknowledges the baseline's going up 7%. So the baseline, if we do nothing, what they're all comparing and talking and contrasting is the baseline will add nine to $10 trillion, or actually eight to 10 trillion. We can't get it any more precise than that. Eight to $10 trillion over 10 years is what debt will be added. But if we pass the Boehner plan, we'll cut it by a trillion. Well, what does that mean? We're not cutting anything by a trillion. We're gonna add seven trillion to the debt over the next 10 years. That's what the plan is. Now, to really put this in contrast, to show you what it would be like if we had real cuts, there is a plan out there called the Penny Plan. Connie Mack has promoted this, and now I've signed on to it in the Senate. And it balances the budget by cutting 1%. 1% a year for six or seven years. And you say, well, how could that be possible? There's no way, 1%. The budget's 3.8 trillion, 1% is only 38 billion. It's against the baseline, though, it would be over 300 billion every year. So you're really cutting 1.5, 1.6 trillion over 10 years. 
If you cut 1% every year, you'd balance the budget. But it has to be cuts against a baseline that looks like this instead of against a baseline that looks like this. The whole problem with the budget battle, and I go over this every night when I'm on media, is trying to explain that there are no cuts in any of the proposals we're getting. They're all cuts against proposed increases. So it's all a matter of perspective and how these things are presented. Now, I went to CPAC earlier this year, and there were thousands of people there. It was kind of exciting. And one young man who had supported me wrote me a letter. And I'd been up here for about a month or so, or a couple weeks. And he said, thanks for introducing $500 billion in cuts. Thanks for introducing a five-year balanced budget plan. And oh, P.S., by the way, can I please opt out of Social Security? And I loved it because it was just sort of matter of fact. And I was like, well, what young person wouldn't want to opt out of Social Security? Some people have criticized me for trying to fix Social Security because, I mean, you know, where's the libertarian in you? Why don't you privatize Social Security? I've become convinced, though, you know, we failed in the argument, the presentation. We never got anywhere, even though we ostensibly had a president that was for privatization. I still am for privatization. But I am convinced that both politically and also just the budgetary uh, numbers of where the debt is, is that we can't even get to the debate over privatization unless we fix Social Security. So I introduced a bill with a couple of other senators that fixes Social Security by letting the age rise to 70 and means testing the benefits. It acknowledges there's not enough money, it acknowledges we're living longer, it acknowledges that once upon a time we had 50 workers for one retiree, now we've got less than three workers for one retiree. Also just think from a practical point of view, we can't even get to the privatization argument until we fix it. So let's fix it, let's make it a welfare program, let's tell people you aren't gonna get what you think you were gonna get, but if you do it in a means-testing way, you actually can, I think, bring some of the Democrats along and you probably could pass that. I think you can get to that someday. I think it's the only way you get to the next step. I think if we get to the next step, though, and we want to talk about privatization again, we might as well just use a new word. And I think we call it individual accounts to begin with. And I think if we call it individual accounts and people are used to going online and seeing their 401k or their IRA and seeing where their money is in their accounts, and then we start adding to that and we show out what a bad investment it is and we allow private options off of that, I think we could have a chance. Now, when I think of private options, I think of Dave Goldberg, who's here. He's uh, from... Louisville and was my campaign coordinator, Dave and Kay Goldberg. So anyway, uh, he comes with me to this sheet and he likes to crunch numbers and he says, well, I had to pay, and I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. You actually are on, the, you are of Social Security age now. Can I tell him that? All right. Oh, so anyway, all right. But anyway, he tells me how much he's paying in Social Security taxes and he also is on the, uh, the receiving end of them and he says, well, it'll take me, what I paid this year in one year in Social Security tax will take me 36 years to get back the principal. And he says, I am an optimist, you know, on the 36 years, but the thing is, is I'm an investor also, and I would only get the principal back in 36 years. To get any interest on it, it might be 50 years on what he paid in one year in Social Security taxes. Not a very good investment. Now, a good contrast with that, a lot of you know this example, but in 1983, the county of Galveston got opted out. You could opt out at one point. And the workers, it's phenomenal to look at what the workers' investments have done over time, invested in private options. And, uh, you know, I think if we can put that contrast out there, I think we didn't have the best messenger or the best person to articulate it the last time. So I haven't given up on it, but I think we have to maybe do it in a two-step fashion in order to get there.
It's long been said that if you don't vote, you can't complain. But if you don't pay attention to how the government actually functions, should you really vote at all? Jason Brennan argues that the moral duty to vote is a curious and perhaps troubling aspect of our civic culture. He makes that case in his new book, The Ethics of Voting, which he discussed at the Cato Institute in July. So let's start off by asking about, is there a duty to vote? Why think that? Most people believe there is a duty to vote, but the question is, are they right about that? And there's a variety of arguments people have adduced in favor of this view. I'm just going to talk about a few. So one claim is that you should vote because you have an obligation to vote because individual votes have some sort of utility. They're useful in some way. They promote the good. So the claim is something like this, that voting has a high enough chance of producing some significant good such that the expected utility of an individual vote is pretty high. And then the argument is, it's, you know, you should do that because it's relatively low cost and you're producing all this good for society. You know, the idea of expected utility, if you haven't heard that term before, is something like this. If you buy a lottery ticket that has a chance of winning a million dollars, like a 10% chance of winning a million dollars, you can treat that lottery ticket as if it's worth $100,000. A 10% chance of winning a million is worth 100000 What's a vote worth? Well, if you vote for the right candidate, that might be worth maybe a trillion dollars for everybody. And you have some chance of being decisive. Okay. The problem with these kinds of arguments, though, some people argue that there's a chance that you'll change the election for the better, or that there's a chance that you'll save democracy, it might collapse if you don't vote. The problem with these kinds of arguments is that the probability that your vote will make any sort of difference is vanishingly small. It's not one in a million, or one in a billion, or one in a trillion. It's, it's vanishingly small. So it's hard to ground an argument in favor of their thinking that there's a duty to vote on the claim that your vote makes a difference because individual votes don't really matter. And that you might think that's going to be a problem for me later because I'm going to argue you shouldn't vote badly, but we'll, we'll get to that. So instead, the best kind of arguments in favor of thinking that there's a duty to vote are going to hold something like this, that if you don't vote, you're free riding on the people who do vote. Non-voters get the benefit of having good government. They get the benefit of living in a stable democracy, but they're not contributing to that democracy. They're kind of like people who drive on the streets but don't pay taxes for the streets. Or they're kind of like people who enjoy a clean park but who refuse to abide by the rules of the park and don't pitch in and you know, keep it clean and litter or so on. So non-voters get the benefit of government, but they don't provide government themselves. So they're free riders. Or another argument just says that an unwillingness to vote simply shows a lack of civic virtue. Civic virtue is an important moral virtue, and if you're not voting, then you lack civic virtue. And those are two of the best arguments in favor of thinking that you should vote. But I don't think that even these arguments succeed, and I'll tell you a little bit why right now. I think these arguments are based upon a bad, kind of archaic view of civic virtue and of what it would mean to pay a debt to society if there is such a thing. To give you an analogy for that, you know, say back in archaic Greek times, back in the time of Homer, the Greeks would have thought that courage is a virtue that could only be expressed on the battlefield. And nowadays, we've had a little bit of moral advancement since then, and we recognize that courage can be expressed anywhere. It can be expressed in childbirth or in working a job or in like on the playground or just doing day-to-day -day things. Courage is about an appropriate response to risk, and you can express that anywhere. I want to say the same thing about civic virtue. Pretty much every moral philosopher and every political philosopher, much to my my surprise, define civic virtue the same way. They all say that civic virtue is the disposition and ability to promote the common good. But notice that this definition leaves open just what exactly you're supposed to do to express civic virtue. That definition doesn't imply that you have to express civic virtue through political participation. And I think that opening should be looked at rather closely because you can promote the common good through private activity. A very common thought in the liberal tradition, not just the libertarian tradition, but the liberal tradition broadly, is that private activities benefit the common good. When we're engaging in private activities like art, like business, like uh, 
culture making and so on, we're creating and sustaining improving and improving networks of trade and cooperation. We're producing an extended web of cooperation, and it's this web of cooperation, these networks of trade and so on, that are responsible or, or large part responsible for us having as good lives as we have. We're able to realize our differing conceptions of the good life in large part because people are engaging in all these private activities. So these private activities are promoting the common good. When philosophers want to prove that government promotes the common good, they'll do state of nature thought experiments. Well, they'll have us imagine, they'll say, imagine for the sake of argument that government didn't exist. What would life be like? And they say it'll be nasty, solitary, poor, brutish, and short. Well, you can make a similar kind of argument for private activity. Imagine a world in which everyone engaged in politics and no one did anything else. They didn't make art, they didn't make grow food, they didn't do any of the private stuff. That would be also a world in which life is nasty, solitary, poor, brutish, and short. Or maybe not solitary, we're all at the forum talking to one another. So we're promoting the common good through private activity, and that can be an appropriate way to express civic virtue. You don't have to engage in politics, you can do something else. So imagine there's a woman named Phyllis the Physician, a medical genius, and every hour she spends on medicine, she produces a new scientific breakthrough. If Phyllis wants to promote the common good, it's not really worth her time or our time for her to get to the polls and vote. What she should do instead is work on medicine. Now, she's an extreme case, but elements of what's true of Phyllis generalize to all of us. We can all promote the common good through means other than engaging in politics. Politics is really just nothing special. It's just one of many things you can do to serve society. All right, so that's a little bit about civic virtue and about uh, non-political contributions to the common good. Let's talk a little bit about how you should vote if you do vote and why I think there, is, there are strict obligations with regard to how people vote. Now, one objection to the very idea of there being responsible voting is the claim that you have the right to vote. And so, so you have the right to vote, so therefore you can vote however you want. But that's, that's really causing, like, it's based on a kind of confusion about the word right. When I say you have the right to do something, what I typically mean is other people shouldn't stop you. But it doesn't mean that it's okay for you to do it. So here's an example. I have the right of assembly, and my right of assembly means that other people should allow me to join neo-Nazi political movements. But it would be morally deplorable for me to become a neo-Nazi and participate in neo-Nazi political movements. Hitler had the right of free speech, and he used that right of free speech to write Mein Kampf and to advocate all sorts of horrible things. Now, other people shouldn't have stopped him from doing that, but it was morally deplorable for him to do so. So the mere fact that you have the right to do something doesn't tell us that it's right for you to do it. It just means you shouldn't be stopped. It might still be a bad thing to do. And so it might also be with voting. So what do I mean by voting well? Well, first I'm going to explain what I mean by voting well, and then I'm going to explain why I think people ought to vote well if they do vote or otherwise should abstain. So the first part about voting well is you have to have sufficient epistemic justification for your political beliefs, which means that your political beliefs are based on strong evidence. A lot of people, when it comes to politics, they just kind of have certain emotional dispositions to believe one thing or another. They don't impartially weigh the evidence. If they look at evidence, they process it in a highly biased way. They take in evidence that confirms their view. They dismiss and ridicule evidence that disconfirms their view. These are people who don't have justification for their beliefs about politics. And these are people who are not going to be good voters on my theory. Other ways to fail to vote well would be if you're completely ignorant, if you just don't know what you're talking about at all. If you're irrational, if you arrive at your beliefs the wrong way, and Brian Kaplan has a lot to say about that and people being irrational in politics when it comes to their economic beliefs, um, or possibly also having deeply immoral beliefs, like racist beliefs, and then acting upon those. And I'm going to argue that it's wrong to vote on the basis of these kinds of beliefs. Now, I've also said that when you're voting, you should vote for the common good. And a lot of people are skeptical about the idea of the common good. But I don't think we need to be so skeptical. It's true that we have, there's diversity in our lifestyles. We don't all want the same thing. But to say that you're committed to the common good doesn't mean that you think that there's some sort of special good of society over and above the good of individuals. Instead, you're saying, you can be committed to the idea that 
to, for us to live our diverse conceptions of the good life, we all need certain background institutions and policies. There are certain things government can do that can make it more likely that each of us can live our good lives, and there are things that it can do to make it less likely. So we all need a certain degree of wealth, a certain degree of freedom, a certain degree of health. We need social order and so on. And so the common good are these background things that we need in order to realize our differing conceptions of the good. So saying that there is a common good that the government should promote and that you should vote in favor of isn't committing you to thinking of society as some sort of organic whole with a life of its own. It's just saying that there's a bunch of individuals and there are things you can do to make their lives go better or worse. Transit funding is typically provided by taxes, not fares, so what riders actually value isn't going to be of top priority. Cato Institute senior fellow Randall O'Toole says it's time to put transit under the control of private entities that will actually care about what riders want. He spoke to a Capitol Hill audience in July. By all rights, nobody in this room should be concerned about public transit because it's an insignificant form of travel. It only carries less than 1% of all travel, passenger travel in the United States, virtually 0% of all freight, and uh, it shouldn't occupy any of your time. And yet it does seem to occupy an inordinate amount of time, which may be one reason why our transit systems actually are broken today. According to the Federal Highway Administration, uh, our transit systems have a $78 billion maintenance backlog. And the reason for that is very simple. Rail transit systems like the Washington Metro and the Atlanta rail system and most other recent rail systems have been built with federal dollars, local dollars paid for the operations, and nobody's paying for the rehabilitation and replacement that must be done every 30 years or so, just like we need to rebuild the interstate highway system every 50 years or so. So as anybody here who rides a Washington Metro knows, it's falling apart because nobody has the money to fix it. Chicago, believe it or not, is actually far worse than the Washington system. Boston's is far worse than the Washington system. New York is probably in a little better condition, but between Boston, Washington, Chicago, and uh, San Francisco, those four cities alone probably have a 40 to $50 billion maintenance backlog. The total $78 billion maintenance backlog is, includes all the other transit systems in the country combined. Now, one reason why we have serious problems with transit is because transit insists on following a backwards technology system. For example, we have cities, Atlanta recently got approval to build a streetcar system. That's an 1890s technology. Uh, here in Washington, they're talking about building the Purple Line light rail. That's a 1930s technology. And then, of course, somebody, I forget his name, was talking about building high-speed rail. And that's really a 1930s technology, too. Most of the high-speed trains that, what, what's his name, Obama wanted to build, were going to be 110 miles an hour. This is a 1939 train from Minneapolis to Chicago, went 110 miles an hour. He also wanted to build some faster trains, a couple of faster trains. That was 1960s technology as used in Japan. So we're talking about backwards technology applied to today's problems. These technologies don't work. They were rejected primarily because they were far too expensive and in most cases were too slow and inconvenient compared to driving. 
Well, why do cities insist on adopting these backwards technologies? Well, one reason is that the vast majority of funds for transit come from taxes. Only about 20 to 25% come from fares. And so if you're a transit agency, you care about what your transit riders need a lot less than you care about what the taxpayers are willing to pay or what you can convince the appropriators to give you. And trains are sexier than buses, and so you want to build a train because you'll get more money out of it, not because it provides better transit. It doesn't. In most cases, it provides worse transit than buses. Even where it is a little better, it's far, far more expensive and not worth the extra cost. Cities have played a game of trying to capture as much money as they can out of the federal government, and the federal government has played along, such that even though transit only carries about 1% of all passenger travel, it's been getting more tax subsidies a year, and this is total federal state and local subsidies, more subsidies a year than highways, which carry about 85% of all passenger travel and about 28% of all freight in the United States. Despite all of these subsidies, transit ridership hasn't really grown all that much. Since 1970, in fact, per capita transit ridership has actually declined, which means we've been throwing, we've, we've blown about a half a trillion dollars on transit, a lot of it building obsolete rail systems in the United States since 1970 and seen a decline in ridership. That's not a symptom of a good thing. Meanwhile, even though we haven't been spending that much on new highway construction, highway driving has increased dramatically, whereas transit, you can see on this scale, is just a flat line. One of the problems is that transit agencies have huge taxing districts. Almost all the people who want to ride transit are in that circle. But because they tax a much bigger area, they feel compelled to send buses and other forms of transit out into every corner of the area they tax. And the buses they send tend to be very large buses because after all, the federal government paid for the buses and so you might as well get a big one because the operating cost, it's the same driver whether it's a big bus or a little bus, right? That's the way they reason. Actually, it does cost a lot more to operate a big bus, but they reason that it's one driver per bus. So they get a big bus, so they end up with empty buses. The average number of boardings per bus mile has steadily declined since 1970. The same is true with rail transit. As we build more and more rail lines into lower and lower density suburbs, we see the average number of boardings per rail line decline, and uh, we end up with uh, empty trains and empty buses. Now to see what ought to be done with transit, we only have to look at intercity buses which have experienced a resurgence. They're the fastest growing mode of passenger travel in the United States today. They're growing almost twice as fast in ridership as Amtrak today. Megabus is one, Bolt is another. You've probably seen them if you haven't ridden on them. One of the ways that uh, the new intercity bus services have changed is they've changed how buses work. 
you know instead of going to a bus station, you often go to a curbside. But you also, instead of having a bus that takes you from, say, Washington to New York with stops in Baltimore and Wilmington and Philadelphia and maybe a bunch of other places, you now have a choice. You can take the bus from New York to Philadelphia, the bus to Wilmington, the bus to Baltimore, or the bus to Washington. So you get a nonstop service whichever your destination is, and it's much faster and more convenient. The difference is that the intercity buses go where people want to go because they're trying to earn a profit. The transit buses go where the taxpayers are because they're trying to justify charging them taxes. And so we end up with all these empty buses. If we privatize transit, we won't be able to fill up the buses because they'll go where people want to go instead of to every nook and cranny, every suburb where that already has three cars in every garage and nobody's going to ride transit. Drug prohibition has been a disaster in the United States, but the arguments for ending it have not changed many policies. Cato Institute senior fellow and Harvard economics professor Jeffrey Myron argues for turning the tables. Those who want to maintain prohibition should make their compelling argument for why adults should not be able to do what they want with their own bodies. He made his case at the Cato Institute in June. So I'm here to defend the proposition that the U.S. should legalize all the currently prohibited drugs, such as marijuana, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, and so on. And I'm mainly going to try to do this by simply explaining how an economist okay, would think about the question of whether policy should prohibit drugs. Along the way, I'll try to bring in some perspective from sort of philosophical libertarianism, considerations of freedom and liberty. I think of those as being very, very sympathetic, but I'm mainly just going to stick to being what I am, which is an economist, and talk about how an economist would analyze that question. Now, the basic starting point, the crucial thing I want to emphasize first, is that the question of whether policy should prohibit drugs is really two separate questions. First, should policy do anything about drugs? Should it try to reduce the use of drugs in any way, shape, or form, whether that is via prohibition or whether that's via a syntax or public media campaigns or any other policy? Why not just let the use of drugs be the free market amount of drug use? If you conclude that policy should try to reduce drug use, then there's a second question. What method of trying to reduce drug use is the method that achieves the best ratio of benefits for society to cost for society? Prohibition, you know, perhaps, is certainly one possible approach, but it's not the only approach, and we need to think about how we should try to reduce drug use if we're going to try to do that. Now, I'm going to argue that there is not a very convincing case that we should be trying to reduce drug use at all. If that's right, then of course we shouldn't be using prohibition to reduce drug use because we shouldn't be engaged in any such effort in that direction. And second, I'm going to argue that even if you think policies should try to discourage the use of drugs, okay, prohibition has got to be the worst possible method for accomplishing that goal, even if you take that goal as being worthwhile. So let's start by asking, should policy try to reduce drug use? Okay, should government treat drugs any differently than it treats zillions of other commodities that people are free to use as they see fit? Downhill skiing, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, okay, toaster ovens, billions of other things. Why are drugs different? Okay. The basic economic answer is they're not. Okay. The basic economic answer, the rational consumer economic perspective, says people use drugs 
because they want to use drugs. They think that using drugs will give them some benefit, whether that benefit is recreational, whether it's medicinal, whether it's just to look cool and being like your friends or whatever. Okay? Economics starts, it doesn't finish, and we'll get to that, but it starts with the presumption that people are rational, they understand the risks that are out there, and that when they make choices, they make them voluntarily, and so we should accept consumer sovereignty, we should accept consumer choices, so people are consuming drugs because they want to, and so there needs to be some compelling reason to intervene, some compelling exception to that perspective before we undertake any policy to reduce drug use. Of course, if you take a libertarian perspective, you're going to come to exactly the same conclusion. The rights-based libertarianism says people should be free to do what they want, okay, subject to a few caveats, but only a few. So our presumption should be, our starting point should be that drugs should be legal and the burden of proof should be on anyone who wants to restrict freedom, who wants to interfere with consumers' ability to use whatever drugs they want. So that's the starting point. Of course, that's not necessarily the ending point. There are reasons why both economists and libertarians might accept some reasons why government should intervene in individual choices. I want to talk about each of those in turn. And they fall under roughly two different categories. One I'll call irrationality, and the other I'll call the economics term externalities. So let's think about each of those. A different perspective than the rational economic consumer perspective says that people don't make good choices, okay? that they're not free to exercise their own will, that they overestimate their ability to resist addiction, that they don't think carefully about the future consequences, negative consequences of drug use and so on. And so people make lots of mistakes when left to make their own choices, and they may be especially likely to make such mistakes for commodities that can be dangerous, for commodities that can be addictive, and so on. We're not so worried that they make mistakes by buying cornflakes instead of Cheerios, but we are concerned, perhaps, that they make mistakes with respect to things which can have very serious consequences. Okay? So if that's true, then some economists want to argue that government can protect consumers from themselves, can make them better off by being paternalistic, by interfering with individual choices and deterring people from using these particular commodities like drugs that allegedly have these large negative effects. Okay? Now, of course, libertarians don't find that perspective particularly appealing, but leave that aside for the moment. Okay? What I want to argue is that even for economists who are open to this paternalistic view, the details and the facts and the other aspects of the whole argument don't make a good case for paternalism purely on the basis of the economics. So first, undoubtedly there are negative consequences of drug use. Undoubtedly people get addicted who didn't mean to get addicted and suffer as a result. But the range of negative consequences is often grotesquely exaggerated. Caricatures in movies, in some books, and TV shows are giving us one very, very small slice of the overall picture by showing us the extreme cases, just as most people who exercise okay, have knees with minor or little damage. Their knees don't look like those of someone who is a middle linebacker in the NFL for 20 years. The vast majority of people who use drugs don't experience the extreme conditions that are sometimes portrayed as being the normal outcome of drug use. Okay? Second, okay, second caveat to using paternalism as a basis for interfering with individual choice is that there are, of course, zillions of things 
that people might do irrationally. They might save too little. They might exercise too much. They might exercise too little. They might pursue religion excessively or not enough. The range of things that you could imagine government trying to improve individual choice with respect to is so vast that, of course, you would exhaust all government resources if we put government in the position of saying, we're going to make decisions for people who aren't making good decisions for themselves. Leading from that point, the third point, of course, is once you put government in the position of saying, we're going to intervene with respect to certain choices, we don't trust individual decisions about drugs, it's a very small step to say, and we don't trust individual decisions about what to eat, how much to eat, whether to exercise, whether to force people to be religious or to prevent people to be religious. And of course, governments have engaged in all those sorts of policies okay, in different countries around the world through history. Okay? Finally, while it's undoubtedly possible, indeed likely, that some people use drugs okay, irrationally in ways that are self-destructive, huge fractions of people okay, appear not to. Huge fractions of people appear to use drugs in ways which appear to be neutral or indeed quite beneficial okay, for those people. And so if we do anything to try to discourage drug use, we may be discouraging those people who are using irrationally, or we may not be reaching those people, but we would simultaneously be preventing people who would get some benefit from drug use from getting that benefit. Okay? So paternalism is an understandable perspective. Okay? It's not one libertarians like. It's one that a lot of economists have sort of accepted as a possible framework. But when you look at the details, you realize that even in the simple economics perspective, Paternalism has the potential for huge cost. Okay? It can easily end up doing more harm than good okay, overall. Okay? Similarly, if you come to the issue of paternalism from the libertarian perspective, okay, then of course you're going to point out that freedom and liberty mean the freedom and liberty to do what you want, whether that turns out to be good or bad. It's not just the freedom to live your life the way the government thinks you ought to live your life. It's the freedom to make mistakes, even if those mistakes are sometimes quite serious. I don't find the paternalism perspective a good defense of government policies that try to intervene in individual choices about drug use or anything else for that matter. Okay? Now there's a different justification, okay, which I'll be slightly more sympathetic toward, which says that even if individuals are all being rational or whether or not they're being rational in their drug use, they may sometimes harm others by using drugs, driving under the influence of drugs, okay, by using drugs during pregnancy and adversely affecting a, a, a fetus, okay, by making themselves ill and making excessive use of publicly funded health care. Okay, it's frequently referred to as a fiscal externality and so on. Okay. It's certainly right that drug use sometimes generates externalities, just as alcohol does, just as tobacco does, just as many other things do. Okay, so, okay, Interventions that try to address those externalities are potentially defensible to economists. Okay? Likewise, libertarians, while defending individual liberty vehemently, do recognize that if one person's exercise of his liberty negatively affects someone else's liberty, if I drive down the highway under the influence and I harm innocent pedestrians and other motorists, that is potentially a quite legitimate area for government to intervene because my exercise of liberty is taking away someone else's. Okay? So there's certainly room for both economists and libertarians to think that some policy to reduce drug use might make sense from the perspective of externality. Still, there are very important caveats. 
As with the paternalism argument, the externalities are routinely grossly exaggerated. For example, there were huge horror stories in the mid-1980s about the effect of crack okay, on the social and mental and physical outcomes for babies born with crack-addicted mothers. Those stories turned out to be grotesque exaggerations based on very small biased samples. Not that one would ever recommend that pregnant women consume crack, but okay, one should have a sense of proportion about how negative those effects are. Okay? Of course, there are zillions of goods which cause externalities, and if we were honest okay, about which ones really are the big ones, we'd probably be targeting very different things. My favorite example is late night TV. The number of people who stay up too late watching Jay Leno, okay, and therefore are sleepy the next day at work and unproductive at work, or maybe even fall asleep and you know let some big tractor trailer have a big accident, is probably huge. That's potentially affects a large fraction of the population, those are negative externalities on everyone else. Okay? So a thoughtful and consistent non-politicized examination of what really causes externalities would be quite extensive. Okay? And it's very hard to figure out what really generates externalities on that. Classic example is tobacco. You might think, gee, tobacco is really bad. It generates a fiscal externality because tobacco smokers get sick, okay? and then they use publicly funded health care. Well, that's true to some extent, but they also tend to die young, which means they're not around to collect a lot of Medicare and Social Security. So the externality logic applied consistently could say, depending how the numbers come out, we should actually be subsidizing tobacco use. Then we'd get all these people out of the population as collect Medicare. We would solve Paul Ryan's problem in a heartbeat. Okay? So no one, of course, would argue that. But that shows that the externality argument is often used in a very selective, okay, not consistent, and not sort of fact-based manner. So reasonable people can defend some policies directed at drugs based on the externality perspective, but they have to recognize that it's very messy in practice, okay, and it may in fact be doing on net not argue in favor of such policies because any attempt to reduce the externality reducing drug use is also going to affect the non-externality generating drug use. We're going to harm those people who manage to use drugs rationally, safely, without harming others. Just as taxes on alcohol, for example, may prevent some people from drunk driving by reducing their alcohol use, but for sure they raise the price, okay, and therefore lower the well-being of every moderate alcohol drinker okay, who doesn't drive under the influence and doesn't generate any externalities. So let me summarize what I've said so far. I want to argue that the advocates of any policy that restricts or limits okay, individual drug use should bear the burden of proof, that it shouldn't be the legalizers who have to defend their position. It should be the prohibitionists who have to defend their position. Okay. That reasonable people can make raise concerns about whether we should have some kinds of policies that target inappropriate kinds of drug use, just as we have policies for inappropriate kinds of alcohol use, like driving under the influence. But it's very hard to make a coherent argument for general presumptions that all drug use should be discouraged or reduced. Okay? In particular, okay, nothing in this general discussion of why you maybe might, under some narrow circumstances, want to reduce drug use, says that prohibition is the right policy, says that eliminating all drug use is the right policy. It at best suggests that there are some kinds of drug use we might want to reduce. Okay? Now, given that, let's set that issue aside for the moment and say, Imagine that society has chosen to try to reduce drug use generally. Okay? Is prohibition a good method for trying to achieve that goal? And I want to argue that it's basically the worst possible approach. Okay? Why? 
Prohibition doesn't eliminate the market for drugs. Okay? The rhetoric of some politicians, some policymakers, acts as though by passing a law, we can get rid of drug use. But of course, that's blatantly false. Prohibition probably does have some effect in reducing drug use. The evidence would suggest small effects. But clearly, huge markets remain, okay, despite the fact that we have quite severe penalties for selling drugs, for possessing drugs, and so on. Okay? So what prohibition does is it creates a black market. It creates an underground market in which people buy and sell drugs. And in that black market, a bunch of really unfortunate things happen. In the black market, we see far more violence than we would see if drugs were legal and transacted in legal markets. Why? Because black market suppliers and consumers for any good can't resolve their differences of opinion, their disputes okay, with courts, with lawyers. They do so with guns because they're not allowed access to the legal dispute resolution system. Prohibition generates corruption. That's especially obvious in many sort of developing countries that are suppliers of drugs because, again, the people in the drug industry can't have ballot initiatives. They can't lobby Congress in the standard way that most businesses do. They engage in bribes to jurors, to police, to judges, and so on. Okay? Prohibition generates income-generating crime, theft, prostitution, and so on, by forcing the prices of drugs to be much higher. Prohibition lowers quality control. So the people who continue to use drugs despite prohibition are clearly worse off. They don't know what dosage they're getting. They don't know what adulterants might be in the drugs. And of course, they face the risk of going to jail, which is one of the worst things that can happen to you, far worse than most kinds of simple use of even the strong illegal drugs. We get greater spread of HIV because of prohibition. Under prohibition, we don't give people easy access to clean needles. We force the price of drugs to be much higher, so people have a strong incentive to inject to get a big bang for the buck. Much of the spread of HIV in the last 20 years in the US has been the result of intravenous drug use, of sharing dirty needles. That's directly a result of prohibition. Because of prohibition, we have limitations on medical research. We have limitations on civil liberties, all sorts of extremely aggressive policies, such as knocking down doors without uh, no-knock warrants and things like that, that sometimes put innocent people at great risk and more generally infringe on reasonable notions of civil liberties. We've created havoc in many supplier countries because we have pushed them to try to enforce the drug prohibition that we think is the good policy. And the list goes on. When you listen to that list, you think, gee, even if I really don't like drugs, even if I really wish everybody did not use drugs, there's got to be a better approach. The particular approach we're using now is just incredibly insane. So what's the alternative? The obvious alternative to economists is a syntax. Syntax, or some people get upset when I use the word sin because they think I'm disapproving of drugs. I'm just using the word syntax because that's the common term. Compare a prohibition to a policy of simply imposing a relatively high tax rate okay, on drugs, similar to what we do for alcohol and tobacco. It can show in a very straightforward way with standard economics that any increase in price and reduction in consumption that you can achieve via prohibition, you can also achieve okay, with the appropriate size syntax, assuming that you devote appropriate resources, roughly the same resources, to enforcing that syntax as you were using to enforce that prohibition. So first, we've gotten about the same increase in price and the same reduction in consumption. But there's a crucial difference. With the syntax, okay, government collects a lot of tax revenue. And the tax revenue is a transfer from people who purchase drugs to the general 
coffers. It can be used to build hospitals. It can be used for tax rebates. It can be used for other things. When we have prohibition, we force huge expenditures of resources on extra judges and jurors and prisons and so on okay, in order to enforce okay, the underground trade. We draw all sorts of resources into the production of drugs because it's done in a much more expensive way when it's driven underground. So we're clearly better off by enforcing the same increase in price and reduction in consumption that we've decided is appropriate if you accept that perspective, which I don't particularly, but if you wanted to do that, okay, by using the syntax rather than by using okay, that prohibition that we currently use. Economic reasoning says maybe, okay, maybe there's a case for some kinds of interventions to reduce some kinds of drug use in some circumstances, but no good case that there should be a general presumption that somebody sitting in his or her living room consuming drugs and not doing anything else to anybody should be interfered with in any way, shape, or form. Okay? So there's not a good case for us to intervene at all. If we're going to intervene at all, okay, we should be intervening in a way which achieves a good ratio of benefits to cost. The prohibitionist mentality just assumes that the only goal is reducing drug use. It doesn't think carefully about at what cost. And we are experiencing enormous cost in the attempt to achieve reductions in drug use and not achieving especially large reductions in drug use, if any. So we're mainly getting cost and very little benefit. Whatever benefit we are getting, we could get much more effectively with the taxation approach. Okay. So I just want to end by saying one more time, I think it's a tragedy that in a country that prides itself on a history of freedom and liberty, the burden of proof is now on the legalizers and not on the prohibitionist. Okay? The presumption should always be that people get to do what they want to do unless someone can show convincingly and compellingly and in a quantitatively important way that one person's exercise of individual choice is seriously inhibiting something else, somebody else's liberty, somebody else's ability to lead their own lives. And I don't think the prohibition argument has come anywhere close to meeting that burden of proof. On September 15th, the newest issue of the Cato Supreme Court Review will be available for purchase. Now in its 10th year, this annual publication brings together leading scholars to analyze the Supreme Court's most important decisions from the term just ended and preview the year ahead. To order, please visit catostore.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.